Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everybody welcome back to podside picnic uh this is pete uh the host who never seems to go to what go away and uh we've got uh carlo with us of course how's it going carlo it's doing all right i'm doing all right i should say excellent excellent um uh chewy is asleep in the corner so there's about a 50 50 chance we're going to get some deep bass barking about midway through the episode and we are joined by uh, Sam Miller, who uh, is going to be discussing the Blade Between with us. How are you, Sam? I'm very well, thank you. Excited to be here. Well, I'm just, glad. Uh, just a quick, slight correction: the Blade Between us. No, it's just the Blade Between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the Blade. Oh, between. did it? see? See, even I fucked it up. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, folks. <laughs> okay, well, if I said us, I won't say it again. Uh, we'll. <laughs> <laughs> the sound editor will come back and let us know who's wrong. I'm totally fine with that. Um, I, uh, because uh, I'm doing the intro, I get to hit with the first question. And I've been thinking about something a lot, Sam, which awesome. is uh, whales as metaphor. In this book and in uh, the Blackfin City, Blackfish City, I'm just going to do that all the time through this. <laughs> um, you use whales to talk about uh capitalism and oppression a lot and i was wondering if you would talk about you know what what that symbolizes and how you use it and then one step deeper why do you pick that as opposed to you know chickens in a battery farm or you know all of the other things that happen that are so horrible it's a it's a really good question and i don't have a good answer um i just think whales are awesome i mean i do think that um you know, uh, I did grow up in a whaling town, you know, that that much of Blade Between is true. Hudson w was sort of established and grew to, to economic prominence as a whaling town. Um, and so I was surrounded by there's a there are monuments to whalers in my town. There's a, um, a museum that has a giant jawbone of a sperm whale in it. Um, every little, every street sign has a tiny little cartoon whale on it. It's on the seal of the city. So it's very much, it's, it's great to come from a place that has a symbol, um, especially a symbol, uh, as awesome as a whale. Um, but I also think that whales are great, um, tools for discussing our relationship with non-human life in general. You know, whales are, are, are really intelligent. Whales engage in a lot of behaviors that we think of as being unique to humans, like killing for sport um, or pursuing vengeance or, um, you know, having unique behaviors that are specific to different communities. Um, you know, different pods of orcas have 
certain like hunting practices that others don't. So, um, you know, whales are, are, are good mirrors for humans insofar as they, um, you know, they, they sort of give the lie to a lot of the specialness we like to attribute to ourselves. But they're also just really cool and badass um, and, and so uh, lend themselves well to fiction. That's cool. I mean, uh, I, I do want to put out, put, ask you up front, because if I'm not mistaken, you, um, the first time we met was at the Baltimore Book Festival, and I don't remember, were you just reading Moby Dick for the first time at that point? Um, I reread it periodically. I doubt, okay. I mean, I, I doubt that I would have, I, I feel like I read it a long time ago for the first time. I do, I do discover new things in it every time. Um, and I do have a Moby Dick tattoo and I am really obsessed with it. So it is, it is entirely possible that, um, I was speaking with the enthusiasm of, a, of someone who had just discovered something new and amazing. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. I do think of it as a, um, you know, among other things, it has one of my favorite interracial gay marriages um in all of fiction um so uh so in that respect it, it has a special place in my heart um yeah. but also badass whales killing people um i also yeah. i also approve of yeah Queequeg and uh, ishmael forever exactly uh, so uh i i ask you that because uh, i don't want to presume mainly because there's plenty of people that sort of like whiffed on it when they you know when they were in school or you know pretended that they read it for a book report or whatever and they you know they just simply didn't want to read it or what have you or it's, it's old but you know uh, there is a resurgence i have found people that like i'm reading moby dick for the first time as an adult and it's fantastic so you know that's I, I why think i asked uh, yeah i think it's it's worth asking and i do think it's one of those books that i totally get it like there's plenty of people i think who hate it and i could i could see that i think it includes one of the things that makes it so special to me is how broad it is and how much it includes um that is totally unnecessary and so um mm -hmm. especially if you're an animal lover like me um you know the lengthy scenes of butchering whales are deeply unpleasant um mm -hmm. and uh the lengthy natural history digressions are um not always as charming as one would like so i get it um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. um but but i do think it, it it's if it, it has much to reward you if if um if it's you know it, it for some people i think it's very special yeah i mean well, I, I would I, I, i'm sorry i was just gonna finish my thought uh pete um of course. i was just gonna say that up until like about the halfway point uh or perhaps even a little bit more it it comes across as very sort of a series of vignettes that sort of give you a vibe rather than uh, a, a straightforward story that, you know, a more modern reader would, would expect. But, uh, go, go on ahead, Pete. I, I just oh, wanted to make that comment. <laughs> I was just going to enthuse. I think it's a remarkably modern novel. Like it takes a lot of risks and it's really experimental. I mean, like if, if Jonathan Franzen took a chapter to discuss the color white or to, go off on the different tight ways to tie a knot. I mean, it sort of fits into our modern understanding of a book, but like Melville was like way out there on his own doing these things. And I think it's pretty incredible how well it worked. I mean, if, if you'd have described the novel before you handed it to me, I probably wouldn't open the thing. 
<laughs> no, I, th I think that's right. And I also think that speaks to why it was a relative failure in his own time. Um, and other books of his were much more popular that have not aged well. Um, it's very much a book of the 20th century, even though it's it, it was obviously written well before then. Um, so I think it speaks, it's one of those books that speaks to um, uh, timelessness more than any particular moment. So I did want to ask you this, and let me let me set this up a little bit, uh, Sam, because uh, as I as I sort of went further on into the book, like uh, it felt like it was inspired, like by Straw Peter Straub's ghost story. It felt maybe it's the the location, you know, like upstate New York and whatnot, uh, for me. But uh, it did feel like it, it's like ghost story, but if the the boogeyman or the ghost was actually gentrification. <laughs> and uh, with, with obviously what we've been prefacing with, with by uh, prior to this question uh, with a dash of like Moby Dick thrown in. Um, so I, I guess my question here is, uh, were you trying to write your, you know, your Sam J Miller ghost story or, yeah, or um, what, what inspired I, you to write this? I, it's not, it isn't that book. Um, I do, I, I really liked Coco. I do enjoy a lot of Peter Straub. I haven't read um, Ghost Story. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is very much a like book about my obsession with the horror novel in general. I think there's a lot of Shirley Jackson in this book. I think there's a lot of Stephen King in this book. Um, there's a little Lovecraft, but it's sort of like third or fourth generation Lovecraft. It's like um, the ideas he had as explored by other less problematic, more nuanced, <laughs> more, more creative and interesting authors <laughs> than him. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I think I think, you know, this is this is very much like familiar tropes, um, you know, the idea of the town with a secret, this place that um, has in a in a weird way through isolation from the rest of the world preserved some kind of magic or barbaric practice or something. Um, and this sort of ongoing question I, you know, I have of like, what would happen if like, you know, New York City weekenders started moving to the town of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Would they be exempt <laughs> from the lottery? Would they be all asked to leave town once a year? Like, would they be the targets of the lottery? Um, you know, uh, I, I think that um, a lot of horror is sort of about the intrusion of the old into the new. Um, and so um, that that is certainly something that obsesses me, especially as someone who thinks pretty constantly and obsessively about the ways that the oppression of the past um, will manifest itself in our own lives. And, and that that sort of like, you know, one of the reasons why James Baldwin is, is my favorite American writer is because he's so obsessed with this question of how we live history in ourselves. It's not this thing that happened and is over with. Um, you know, we still live the legacy of, of oppression um, that created us and our place in the world and our and our privilege, our, our, our suffering, our, um, our love, um, our desire. So, um, yeah, uh, I think I think there is a lot of very visible um, uh, ghost story antecedents in this. Um, you know, this is, it, I did have to reread Needful Things as I was writing it because um, I wanted to make sure I didn't accidentally rip it off too much. There, there's definitely some ripping off of Stephen King's Needful Things that I, that was unavoidable, but um, I, I thought about the it. summer people a lot while reading this. Yeah. You and me, you and me both. I love that. I love that. And I, and I, and I think, uh, I think, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of Shirley. 
in me, if I if I may be so presumptuous. <laughs> I aspire I aspire to a state of surliness. Well, I mean, you you have been nominated for her, the award that's named after her uh, more than once, is, if I'm not mistaken. I have been nominated three times and won once. Not that I use that in every conversation I ever <laughs> have with anyone ever. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, so we talked to, well, I mean, obviously we talked to a lot of writers. That's what we do here. I mean, if, if we're not talking to authors, we're putting words into the mouths of uh, dead ones on this show. So um, one of the things we see is sort of there's a, there's a fork in the road where people write. Some people, it's very workmanlike. I wrote this book because uh, there was a deadline and I was trying to make rent and that's how it is. And then other people are taking these deep journeys of personal exploration. It's like self-surgery. And you, I mean, if I had to pick, I would say you're more on the self-surgery side, but you really strike me as someone who's close to the middle. It's like you're using, you're using the personal to develop your writing am i am i anywhere near correct here i think so um i think that i definitely am super privileged and fortunate to be a relatively fast writer who can you know um you know i know people for whom writing a novel is something that takes years um and usually i can i can write a novel in like six to nine months um at least the rough draft of it um so so while I do a lot of <laughs> a lot of self-surgery, I mean, my first novel was about my own experiences with an e adolescent eating disorder. Um, and this one is about the sort of small town homophobia um, that drove me away. And then my sort of like love hate relationship with the city I grew up in. Um, so there is a lot of self-surgery, but I am I am fortunate to have a sort of like, you know, um, uh, the ability to do those deep dives with um, surgical precision, I guess. Um, and, and a certain that's workman, fair. a certain workman likeness. Um, that is, I'm unsure whether that's a blessing or a curse. Um, there's a part of me that wants to, um, take more time. Like, you know, this, the blade between is my fourth novel published in four years, which is amazing. And, and I'm super, super happy and, and fortunate. And that, Certainly wasn't always the case because before I got a novel published, I wrote uh, six novels nobody wanted um, and spent years and years trying to find a home for them. And it's, as I'm sure y'all are aware, it's a super miserable uh, experience <laughs> writing a book nobody wants, um, let alone six of them. Um, so while I am super happy to 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 be in this place where I'm able to get um, books published, I'm also like, maybe I need to take my time with the next one and really sort of like let it develop and let it digest and and not rush into the next thing because I do tend to get super obsessed with something and 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 dive in. And so I'm, I'm trying to let this next book gestate a little longer, which will either allow me to create something amazing and new and um, some new height of achievement or be total death to my creative process. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> Watch this space. Um, <laughs> so, Sam, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Art of Starving, which I have also read. And I did want to point out, I'm going to jump ahead real quick because I did have this question. And this might be real sort of uh, comic book nerd type stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, Art of Starving takes place in, in Hudson as well uh, for the same reasons that you just d detailed in, in your answer to the, pr to the previous question. Um, 
And you do make a small reference in this book about the Great Hawk Escape, which was a, a, a sort of like a climactic uh, set piece in The Art of Starving. Is this the same Hudson as the one in The Art of Starving, or is it slightly different? Uh, I mean, all of my work takes place in a shared universe, um, which is somewhere between pretentious and lazy. I'm not sure where exactly, um, because I do, <laughs> you know, as a reader, I enjoy when I am um, reading work um, by the same author and I come across that sort of intertextuality. You know, Stephen King does that a lot where um, uh, you'll sort of see the older brother of a character you've met before Um so, uh, you know, or, or you'll, you know, someone who was a kid in Stand By Me, or the body is now, you know, working at the gas station in, in this other book. Um, I, that always is, is exciting to me and I enjoy that. So I, I try to try to capture that um, in my own work. Um, but yes, this is very much the same Hudson um, as The Art of Starving. Um, they, all my stuff is in this sort of shared universe where characters will re resurface from story to story. There will be um, you know, mention of the same fictional events. Um, so yeah, uh, even though I ran screaming from Hudson, uh, as soon as I possibly could, um, three of the four novels I've published have taken place there. So obviously I'm still <laughs> obsessed and, uh, still thinking about it a lot. So, uh, yeah, it's it's the, it's the same Hudson. I I am sure the people who did not run screaming from it would argue that it is not in fact the real Hudson. Um, but it's very much the Hudson of my of my nightmares slash dreams. <laughs> so, in other words, um, in in the Hudson of the Blade Between, uh, the climate wars are coming. The climate and wars are coming. Yes, a hundred percent. Even when yes, even the, even the science fiction and fantasy coexists um, in in my. Uh, in my in my fiction so i uh, love that man <laughs> I, I certainly did try to think of a way to reference the client the, the hog rampage uh in the in blackfish city but it, it didn't they did there wasn't really a way to do that gracefully um so <laughs> so uh i guess my uh so given that this is somewhat of a ghost story uh, not just, uh, uh, you know, the, the big ghost is not just gentrification. Could you talk a bit about the other ghosts that sort of linger about uh, the Hudson of the Blade Between? Yeah. So um, I think that, um, again, because I'm sort of obsessed with history as not as, as a living thing, right, as a, as a presence that shapes our world, not as this interesting thing in a book. Um, you know, there's a lot of ghosts in Hudson that have to do with history. Um, and, you know, one and, and most of it is like the ugly, <laughs> the ugly aspects of history, um, the things that we are maybe not proud of or that shaped our world in, in, in problematic ways and explain many of the problems we're dealing with. Um, and so, for example, one sort of ghost lingering in Hudson is, you know, American racism and the legacy of, um, you know, how urban planning has gone in America over the past 150 years where, you know, communities of color have always been seen as um, blight to be destroyed or um, fertile ground for exploitation or any number of of things where the needs of the people who live there are not taken into account. They're sort of like a problem to be solved or a, 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 a cash cow waiting to be, to be benefited from. Um, so that, um, 
you know, modern American cities as we know them have all been shaped by that. If you look at neighborhood, if you look at like the interstate, um, how the interstate highway system was developed um, and how aggressively cities used that to demolish black neighborhoods, um, it's it's it becomes really clear how much of modern real estate and how the cost of housing um, is still uh, shaped by things that happened decades ago. Um, so, so there's that. Um, who gets to benefit from neighborhood transformation? What neighborhoods get transformed, and how? Um, again, there's there's more literal ghosts in in um, in the blade between the 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 whales that were um, slaughtered um, and and butchered in Hudson, um, but, and on whose blood Hudson's relative wealth and power was built in the 19th century are still are still present are still shaping the city and and sort of establishing a sort of supernatural uh control over the city um there's a um another another sort of cameo from another sam j miller story um tom minnick who was a sort of chaos demon monster um in my uh in another story of mine pops up again here um, yeah. yeah, there's all, all sorts of uh, all sorts of ghosts from from sexy sexy male um, monsters to inscrutable um, abstract uh, whale whale ghosts in the sky. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I was going to ask you all about that because uh, I, I I had run across the reference to Tom Minnick in your uh, Angel Monster Man that appeared in Nightmare in 2016. Yep. Um, also, um, nominated for the Shirley Jackson award. <laughs> Not that we're counting or anything. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I guess my question here is, so in, is he the same one from the story? He is. And he's sort of this, um, uh, in both cases, he's sort of a fictional creation who takes on a life of his own. Um, in that story, um, he is created by these three gay artists who are in the 80s who are mourning their many artists who whose lives and careers were cut short by HIV AIDS. Um, and, and, and this is a, obviously a very real phenomenon of um, people who inherited drawers full of manuscripts from brilliant authors who died um, uh, of the disease or drawers full of photographs um, by brilliant photographers whose careers were cut short. Um, and this idea that all like it's it's if you're a, if you're a scholar of queer fiction and queer literary history, you can't not be arrested by this sort of really tragic thing where this literary movement was flowering and then was really abruptly and brutally cut short. So in that story, these writers decide to create a pseudonym under whom all under under which all of these stories can be published. Um, uh, but of course, um, in true Stephen King fashion, the pseudonym comes to life and starts and refuses to uh, be limited by what they want him to do. And he, he starts doing horrible things to take the revenge that they're not capable of taking on a, on a homophobic, on the homophobic world that would, that would allow, that allowed HIV AIDS to, to blossom and flourish and kill so many people, um, and continues to do so. Uh, so yeah, again, here it's sort of like, oh, I want to fight back against, um, gentrification. So let me create this tool. But, um, 
you know, the thing about violence is you can't control it. It, it, it spirals um, and, and, and spawns more and, and, and metastasizes. So um, here, that, that sort of violent creation that's used to um, mess with people will not be contained and, and starts messing with people on his own and, and leading to more and more aggressive, horrific violence. Um, yeah, I was just sort of taken, like I, I had had this idea in my head uh, previous, but this is really a, a great realization of it that uh, Tom Minnick, like the, your protagonist is uh, ostensibly Ronan uh, who has plenty of his own personal uh, ghosts and demons, uh, but he becomes sort of like a weird Dr. Frankenstein to a digital creation. Uh, and then Tom Minnick is loosed upon the world and it also, as I'm saying that, I'm reminded of um, Umberto Eco's uh, Foucault's Pendulum, which has a similar setup, obviously not the same motivations behind it and not the same you know, uh, reasoning behind it. But, you know, the idea of like a, a, a persona made by committee uh, or in in uh, Foucault's Pendulum's case, it's uh, a conspiracy made by committee that then attracts real attention is sort of like a, an interesting parallel. Well, Carlo, you're really calling me out here because you're citing all these literary references I haven't read and you're, made, you're, you're, <laughs> you're ex exposing my ignorance or, or rather I'm exposing my ignorance because I could have just been like, yep, totally meant that. That's what I was trying to do. Um, we, but we, no, I haven't read go that back. book. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but I am, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Borges and, and a lot of the um, Latin American writers who were tackling some of these similar problems. Um, mm -hmm. This sort of like borderline between creativity and um, or the sinisterness of creativity and and the idea that history and fiction um, have uncomfortably ill-defined borders um, and that crazy shit could come across those borders. Um, so um, <laughs> uh, my, again, uh, I, there, I am ripping somebody off, just not the person you thought I was ripping off. <laughs> it, it's all good. Uh, you know, and Herodotus is on notice. Yes, exactly. Well, let me go lower brow here then. Because uh, that's <laughs> that's that's more my speed anyway. Um, one of the things that I I I notice a lot with authors is the tendency to um, to to pack meaning into people's names. And you know we 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 have a character here who is recovering from drug use. He's a roving reporter, and he goes from sort of drifting aimlessly to being on a. Uh, a mission of destruction and revenge, and his name is Ronan. And I'm like, Japanese Ronan? Uh, yeah, so obviously um, that's unavoidable. I definitely weighed that. I mean, you know, the, the, the Irish meaning is seal. There's like, a, it's like a little seal or a baby seal or something because um, it's spelled with an A instead of an I. Mm -hmm. um, uh, which is sort of what I was going for, but I obviously had to, you know, couldn't couldn't avoid the fact that that's also a meaning of of a of a, of a word of a um, I guess it's a homophone sounds the same. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, that that's 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 there. Um, uh, I just really like the name. I do put a lot of thought into the names of my characters, but it's usually just sonic. It's more about the sound of the name um, than the. Uh, uh, illusions of the name um, because it's I find that 
very dangerous insofar it just in the sense that like it's very easy for that to get heavy-handed at least for me yeah um, to give somebody a name that sort of limits who that character can be um or so for example um dom's wife atala um atala was the name of malcolm x's eldest daughter um so that was an intentional illusion insofar as it made sense for me that her mother would have given her that name not necessarily that like i was um you know trying to impose that identity on that character but that within who who that character is and who her mother is um that 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 name that illusion um made more sense but yeah i i usually name my characters based on what i like the sound of I like that. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that there's there's definitely value in just going just going for the flow of it, you know. Yeah. How how it sounds. Um. So, uh, I guess my I I was struck by the fact that you decided to go with a structure that alternated between Ronin as a first person uh, POV uh, chapters, and then the rest of the town had like. Uh, perhaps a close third, but maybe not so close. Um, was this something that you had planned out in advance or was there any reasoning behind it? Or just simply emerged that way. You want to talk about that? Yes. So I have a, I'm a big fan of close third. Um, and I mean, I love first person and, and in many ways that's sort of like tends to be where I go just because that's the easiest way to get inside someone's bloody burning thirsty heart. Um, <laughs> but I do like close third. I just, am. Um, it feels dangerous to me um, because it is so easy to just go mad with power and just, you know, it's the, the, I usually, if I'm going to choose close third, I want to set limits on or at least have a reason for making that decision. Otherwise, it quickly feels like it's jumping around and um, it's not super rooted. So the, the trick I usually end up with um, is that it's not actually close third. It's a first-person omniscient narrator. So the secondary narrator in uh, this book is actually the sort of collective identity of the whale ghosts. That's why half the chapters have Ronin as their chapter header, and the other half have as their chapter header um, at least in the written version, I don't know how they do it in the audiobook and in the ebook, at least the one on Amazon, it's not there at all. Um, but mm -hmm. in the written, in the, in the hard copy, there's a little whale squiggle, like a little drawing. It's the same thing that is described, um, by Ronan as the tattoo on Catch's arm that Tom Minnick also has. Um, mm -hmm. so that that's sort of the identity of the, of the, overall collective identity of the whale ghosts so the, they are the ones it, it's basically two narrate two alternating narrators one of whom is very easy to mistake for a multitude of third person narrators um i don't it is not a demerit if one doesn't get that i i, <laughs> I am fully aware that that is a, that was a an ambitious thing i was trying to do that not everyone is gonna be like oh of course that's what is happening so um if anyone at all gets it, I would probably be surprised. Um, but that's that's what I was trying for. Well, I mean, it, it's it's funny because I did get the electronic version, and, and you're absolutely correct. I think that my if I had seen the little whale squiggle uh, and and identified it as such, I probably would have made that leap. But yeah, uh, it, without it, it, it does change the tenor of what you're what you're trying to accomplish, which is sad because that's 
it should sort of just mimic the the same thing. Anyway, I didn't mean to bring everybody down. But. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> no I, I was just I was just waiting to see if you would uh you you would you would uh, tie that move to an author I'd never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a bibbly bobbly thing. The third. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I ripped it off from. I mean, I'm sure I borrowed that idea from somewhere. I don't know. I'm not pretending to have uh, invented that. Um, I just uh, can't think of of uh, of who of, of where I saw that before. Um, well, I mean, it, it it brings to mind, and I haven't read it, but it brings to mind the um, the sort of structure of like something like Lincoln and the Bardo, where it's a patchwork of these individual uh, sort of narratives or stories that build together into you know like a a, per- a perception, I guess, of of you know who I guess Lincoln was is. You know, that type of thing. So it's it's definitely something I I could see what you were going for, because in the later chapters where it jumps around and is obviously it's it's going for the utility of like, this is happening here. This is happening here. Like it's all sort of. And by the time you realize that things are converging, it it feels much bigger and ominous than than just having say Ronan just like freaking out in his own head. Um, but yeah, it, it, it definitely feels like a little bit of trying to capture the spirit of the town itself rather than simply going for the individual characters that you've set up. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of minor characters that are just, you know, in there for like maybe a paragraph or two. Uh, you know, maybe a page all told in the book. So it's not, they're not gigantic characters that take up the the narrative, like say Atala and, and Dom and, and Ronan do. Yeah. I usually, when I'm trying to do something ambitious and stupid and pretentious form with the formal telling of a story, I try to at least make sure that if you don't get it, you won't, <laughs> your experience of the book will be diminished. Like if you do get it, it's a bonus. Um, but if not, hopefully you'll, it'll still be, um, I don't know, remotely pleasurable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a wise it's a wise instinct anyway, uh, because yeah, if if it fails if it fails to do the one thing, it it still works on the other on another level. So yeah, kudos to you because I, I still sort of got glimpses of what you were trying for. So awesome. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, Pete, do you have uh, something else? Oh, let me think about that. Um, you know, honestly, I I. I kind of forgot we were podcasting and I just started, started <laughs> sitting back and listening to you guys, which is a good sign, but probably not the best thing for an interviewer to do. Um, well, we can always geek out about books I haven't read. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure. There's oh. A lot. I know there's lots. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are so many that, uh, you know, <laughs> well, one of the things we do as, as, um, podcasters is try and, um, uh, try and create a good, bibliography for our audience and so i i think something really valuable is uh sam are there writers out there that that helped motivate your writing are there are there people who who are like yeah we all stand on on the shoulders of giants and here's a couple of mine i mean obviously melville yeah, I, and 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 I've I've talked already a little bit about Stephen King and James Baldwin, who are huge influences on me, and and definitely this book is me um, digging 
into their graveyard, um, trespassing on their property, whatever kind of metaphor uh, you want to use. And actually, one reviewer did call it James Baldwin meets Stephen King, which was like gold right there. Um, but <laughs> that must have know, get, given chills. Yeah, yeah, pr- pretty awesome. Um, because I hadn't really conceived, I hadn't really realized that that was so much of what this book was until they said that. So um, then it was it was the, it was extra gratifying to be startled by that um, perspective. Um, but I mean, everything I do is like owes a huge debt to Octavia Butler, um, uh, who is my favorite genre writer. Um, I, I am a big. I owe a lot both in my actual writing and in my sort of like overall career to to Ted Chang, who was my um, not only wrote my favorite short story of all time, The Story of Your Life, but was my clarion instructor and um, just an all around amazing, amazing author and human being. Um, I um, outside of the genre, I think that um, Virginia Woolf and Jean Genet uh, and Isaac Bobble are two of are, are three of my my big faves. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm sure I could give a lengthy reading list, but I'll I'll stop with those those several <laughs> names. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. I mean, Ted Chang is like just fantastic. I I, I one day hope to write. Even something like The Great Silence, uh, which is a shorter work of his, uh, something that is quite that I- impact, oh, that has so that good. much impact. It's so fucking good. <laughs> and, and you know, you know, you want to know what, what really hits me right now thinking about that is the fact that the Arecibo Observatory that he's referencing in that story is no more. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. When I saw that news, I was the first thing I thought of was those parrots. Um, yeah, everyone should read that story. It is it it is like uh, the one of the best explorations of the sort of like um, bizarre contradictions of human of humanity's inability to appreciate or apprehend the intelligence or um, it, you know the, the the respect for non human life. Um, it's it's just brilliant. Well, I think I think it actually loops back around to something we were talking about earlier, which is um, the way I felt uh, when you were trying to talk about whales is the fact that, you know, we even though we, quote, discovered that, we, you know, even when we, quote, discovered that whales are, you know, v- profoundly intelligent creatures and have a sentience that is probably equal to ours, uh, we kept on just sort of murdering them and rendering them into objects. Right. And in fact, we didn't stop killing them because killing them is bad. We stopped killing them because petroleum was cheaper and better and had more wide uh, applications. And that decision, um, as we have seen over the past century, had its own massive environmental uh uh, devastation impact. So yeah, well, well, yeah it, we're the worst. Yeah. Which will loop back around and fuck the whales anyway. So exactly. <laughs> exactly. But we um, bought them I, some time to, um, you know, develop the technologies required to wipe us out. Have you seen the, uh, the news stories recently about concerted whale attacks? Like whales see, attacking shipping. I did see something about that. Um, um, but I will I will have to dig deeper because it is 
something I, I uh, pay a lot of attention to. We actually had the the week that um, the Blade Between was released. Um, my book about um, the legacy of whaling in the Hudson River. A humpback whale uh, was spotted in the Hudson River um, off of Manhattan in Midtown, like any good tourist, I guess. Um, so uh, I don't know if that was uh, the, what kind of cosmic, bizarre coincidence slash ominous threat that was. Um, but yeah, the whales are the whales are, are are have their eyes on us, and I'm all I'm personally all for their their bloody revenge. <laughs> I'm gonna just say it was uh, it was Aquaman, Pete. There um, you go. <laughs> but I mean, that is uh, honestly the 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 that movie is so dumb. But also, it got that one thing the right it's so right. It's like, oh oh, you want this trash? Here, have it. Bye. Yep. <laughs> just dump yep. it right back on the shore. You are um, you are right on all counts. That movie was incredibly stupid, and I did really enjoy. <laughs> That, it is so fun that moment <laughs> that if, if memory serves that's the same scene where um the, the scene where we see that on the television is either the same scene as or very soon after the scene where jason momoa says to the crowded bar um how come i'm a superhero and you always drink me under the table and he said his father says that's my superpower and then literally the <laughs> next thing we see is aquaman drinking his father under the table like they forgot <laughs> That they just said that. Um. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a it's a supremely dumb movie that is very enjoyable, and uh, of course, Jason Momoa brings a lot of fun to that movie, and he's not bad to look at either. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie about that. Uh, but anyway, the I guess the, the I, I guess I have a question about um, so. Oh, that's the thing. You wrote recently for the Italian edition of Vogue. I you want to talk about that? I did, and I do, um, because what gay boy doesn't dream of one day writing for Vogue, let alone dream of the getting the cover story of Vogue Italia? Um, you know, I, I was uh, in one of those sentences one never thought one would say. Um, my second novel was published in Italian translation, uh, and um, an editor at uh, Luomo Vogue read it and liked it and um, asked me to write a story and you know, since then we've, we, I've been able to work on a couple stories. Um, but then when, um, for the January, 2021, um, uh, edition, uh, issue of Vogue Italia, they were doing a partnership with the WWF Italia to, to sort of do an animal issue that centered animals, um, and their awesomeness. And so they asked me to write the cover story, um, as a sort of like occupy Vogue Italia as if they were taking over. Um, and, uh, it was a huge joy to write. It's a very short story, but I had a lot of fun with it. And, you know, of course, animal uprisings are, um, as I've already said on this conversation and have said in other <laughs> work of mine, um, a big fascination. So uh, it was pretty surreal and bizarre because, um, yeah, I mean, Vogue Italia is just so, so fantastic. And I am not the kind of like, I am fashion gay adjacent. I'm not, I don't have a comprehensive knowledge of fashion and I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for fashion, but I, I don't pretend to know or be fashionable. Um, so yes, it's a nice, it's a nice feather in one's cap um, to defend against 
when when one is criticized for one's relatively unimaginative wardrobe. <laughs> well, have you been published in Vogue Italia? <laughs> right. No. Like, yes, this is from Old Navy, but also... <laughs> I can get away with it. Thank right. you. <laughs> right. All right. Well, uh, and and I'm going to guess uh silly question, right? But I I I wanted to make sure these are fiction stories, right? You're you're not like a suddenly a correspondent uh <laughs> or a contributor to Vogue Italia. I am a contributor of fiction to Vogue Italia. I there have no uh I have I pre- I make no pretense of having anything interesting to say about actual fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I have to admit that I don't know enough to have a, a very informed opinion. So I just uh, admit that I, uh, like yourself, I don't know much about fashion at all. So, yeah. Anyway, um, anything else uh, that you have coming out soon, Sam? Um, well, I had a very bizarre thing where suddenly four short stories of mine came out in one month, um, which has never happened before and is very weird. Um, but I did just have a horror story come out in um, Nightmare Magazine called Darkness Metastatic, um, which is also like The Blade Between, very much about my ongoing obsession slash terror with regards to the rise of right-wing hate and violence um, and is sort of like a Cambridge Analytica on steroids where a AI programmed to, an AI created to exploit and radicalize um, angry right-wingers attains sentience and goes batshit crazy. Um, so uh, that is Darkness Metastatic in the new issue of Nightmare Magazine. Um, I had a story in um, Uncanny called uh, Tyrannosaurus Hex, which is sort of a Ray Bradbury um, meets augmented reality, um, sh- very short story, um, and the Vogue story um, all came out in the same month. Oh, that's nice. All right. Um, I, I, I'm going to try to make all of the, 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 at least the, the nightmare and the uncanny stories, uh, linked up in the show notes. Oh, also, sorry. I just remembered. Um, I also had a story in (laughs) tour.com called let all the children boogie, which is, um, (laughs) uh, about my favorite David Bowie song, Starman. Hell yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll link as much as we can because I mean, that's, um, <laughs> sorry to send too many links. <laughs> oh no, no, it's awesome. Uh, you know, th- thinking about this, you, you've, um, each, each book has been unique, not only in where you're going with it, but almost in terms of genre. Do you, do you know where you're going next? I have no idea where I've been, so I don't have any <laughs> idea where I'm going next. I'm just really bad at genre, y'all. That's the bottom line here is I, um, you know, have written many stories thinking they were one genre and then been told they are not um, or they are a different genre. So, um, you know, it tends to be whatever I'm super obsessed with and and fascinated by at any given moment. I think that um, the the sort of smart move I was counseled to to do after um, Blackfish City enjoyed some uh, limited success as a science in the science fiction world was to write another science fiction novel. But um, my uh, burning, broken, thirsty heart was like, no, you have to write this gentrification ghost story horror novel about your hometown. So so here we are. And so who knows where I, I right now think that I want to write a science fiction novel next. But, you know, 
who knows what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after. Right. And I, I mean, to be fair, like, uh, uh, you're, you're actually sort of following, uh, Sylvia Moreno Garcia's trajectory in the sense that she writes all over the place. It, it uh, weird, co- weird, uh, comedy of manners and with psychic powers. She's got gotcha. a weird true crime story. Yep. Uh, weird horror story. Yep. That's there too. Uh, I would be insanely proud to be in the same, uh, uh, uh breath as her. So thank you. <laughs> well, uh, I think th- I don't have anything else. Pete, do you have uh, any other questions or anything else you want to talk about? No, I, I think this is a pretty good place to to put it. I mean, this is this has been a treat. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, it's been a treat for me too. I appreciate y'all. Um, we didn't get to the part where we geek out about, um, ah, see, now I can turn the tables because I oh. uh, Carlo has not read Roadside Picnic. Um, uh, which there I you go. Go with. um, and it is, um, as far as I can tell where you all got the name of your podcast. So, it is. um, we could spend another hour talking about that and Carlo <laughs> would just have to be, uh, to, to know how it feels, but, um, no, I suppose that's not, that's well, not, we could always, that's not buddies. Yeah. I mean, we could always have you back after I have actually read oh, it. Sounds like a plan. I actually, right. I would love that very much. Awesome. Yeah, because honestly, I I have not read it, and uh, I tried watching, or I tried watching the the movie, and uh, I just I just got busy at work. And <laughs> well, so, it's uh, one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite books, um, uh, even though they are bizarrely different uh, magical creatures. Um, so uh, either one episode doing both, two episodes, one on each. I'm open. Okay, cool. Uh, we will reach out to you then. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Sounds great. And um, so in that case, uh, thanks again for coming on, Sam. Thank you. Uh, It's been a a a blast. Thank you both of you.